You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ezra chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in verses uh, 16 through 18 this morning. Uh, I want to uh, read those verses, and in fact, <coughs> it's a shorter section of scripture, so uh, why don't you guys read along with me, beginning in verse 16 through 18. And the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask God that you would come now, speak to us as as I preach, pray God that you would take the meditations of my heart, words of my mouth, Lord, cause them um, to bring glory and honor to you first of all, um, but also to be helpful to your people that are gathered in this room. Um, Father, I just, I recognize how much I need your help. Um, it's a privilege to stand here and preach your word, to open your word for your people, but I recognize God that your, your son shed his blood, his body was broken um, so that we might be saved. You purchased us <coughs> by the work of your son Jesus. And so for me to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim your word um, to other exiles who have been purchased back from slavery and death, it's such a privilege, but it's also a weight. And I, I feel um, my own um, shortcomings so it blows me away, Father, that you would speak through imperfect people in pulpits on Sunday mornings to other imperfect people. So, Father, just pray that you would remove me and help us to hear from you. I trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so we've been studying the book of Ezra now for just the last couple of months. We're just kind of into the center of the book I'm probably moving just past the center almost, and uh, so we'll be here for a little bit longer. This, this text this morning, it's pretty basic, it's, it's pretty simple, okay? Um, what, what, what Ezra's doing here in these three verses is he's just describing the dedication of the newly built temple in Jerusalem, right? Like, it, it, that's really all there is to it. Like, if you want meaning of the passage, this is the meaning of the passage, Ezra is describing uh, what it looks like to dedicate this second temple in Jerusalem. There's not a lot of fanfare here, okay? It's not a lot of, not a lot of pop to these verses. Uh, in fact, the, the entire event, if you think about how massive this event really was, it's, it's only captured in about three verses of Scripture, okay? Um, you might also think about this. Um, this dedication of this temple. This is the second temple that was built. The first one was built many years before by King Solomon. And there's a massive difference between this temple, this second temple, and the first one that was built by Solomon. Um, 
the dedication of this second temple in Jerusalem, it really pales in comparison uh, with the first temple, okay? The first one that was built by, by King Solomon was, was bigger. Um, the celebration itself was just mad. It was way over the top, okay, compared to this celebration. And in fact, even the amount of, of scripture that is taken up by the dedication of the first temple under Solomon is far more than three verses for the second temple. So there's just, by comparison, you can see this dedication much smaller, much more humble. If you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles 7, you could read all about that dedication of the first temple. We're not going to go there today for the sake of time. But suffice it to say, um, this temple dedication, this one here in Ezra, it's missing a number of things. Um, just to kind of wrap your mind around it a little bit, it's missing the Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, it's missing uh, the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> um, big, big deal. Uh, it's missing the pot of manna that was in the original temple, all these symbolic things. Aaron's rod, no longer there. Um, not to mention, there, there's, no, uh, there's no physical king present. The first temple, you had Solomon in all of his kingly court, you know, walking around in all of their splendor. You don't have that this time. All of that stuff is missing. On top of this, this temple um, that was built, this second temple, was quite a bit smaller. Um, now, it followed the same foundational lines that were there before, but as far as how they built it, much smaller than the original um, temple. On top of that, the sacrifices that are listed out in this passage that we just read, significantly less, significantly less sacrifices offered this time than the first time. So, what's the point? The point is, this one's smaller than the first one. Everybody got that? Everybody say smaller than the first one. You guys are awesome. You're tracking well. It's much smaller. But this doesn't mean that this event, this much smaller event, is not without significance. There's still significance to this story. This dedication may be smaller. Uh, it may appear, and, and not just appear, but probably does have a lot less pomp and circumstance to the event. But there's something really important taking place among the people of Israel at this dedication. So uh, think with me a little bit about the history that led us to this point. I want you to remember that the nation of Israel had been in captivity for how many years? Seventy years they'd been in captivity. And that was following, or, or following the Babylonian invasion when the, the original temple was burnt to the ground and destroyed, right? It was during that time. So for 70 years, they've been in captivity. They've been in slavery. They've been suffering after being carried away from their homeland to a foreign country. Why? This had happened for 70 years because Israel had committed the sin of idolatry, according to Jeremiah 25. If you were to take a moment and read Jeremiah 25, it would shock you, because here's the passage we always hear. We always hear Jeremiah 29, 11, don't we? Who knows that by heart? Raise your hand. Jeremiah 20, 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, 
not plans to hurt you or harm you, plans for your good. We love that on our t-shirts and our coffee cups, but we hate the context of what came before that. We're going to get to that. That's Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25 is where the prophet Jeremiah outlined for Israel, you've been disobedient to God. You're refusing to listen to him. You're committing the sin of idolatry. You're putting good things even in front of God. You're not worshiping him. And if you continue this way, it's not going to be good for you. That's Jeremiah 25. And from that point forward, Israel is in captivity for 70 years. And then you get to the beginning of the book of Ezra, right? At the, book, at the beginning of the book of Ezra, God makes good on his promise from Jeremiah 29, right? That promise where he says, it'll go well for you. Um, I know the plans I have for you. That promise God makes good on in the beginning of the book of Ezra where we started. So don't forget, it's been 70 years, but also since the beginning of Ezra, it's been 21 years. So it's been 21 years from the time of Israel's release at the beginning of Ezra until this day when they're dedicating the temple. So all in all it's been, you can see it on the screen, how many years have they been waiting to worship in the temple? 91 years. That's not something that's immediately clear in the three verses that we read, but that is the context. And I do think it's part of the core of why Ezra wrote these three verses so simply. I think that, that for, for, for 91 years, Israel has not been able to worship together in the temple at Jerusalem, right? Uh, Israel, Israel has been enduring the consequences of her sin for 91 years. 91 years, God has been teaching his people of Israel a few things about waiting as one commentator said, in expectation of blessing by bringing them to a low position. Like, when do you start to really expect a blessing anyways? It's not by being in a place of blessing necessarily. It's typically by being in a low place. It's when you're humbled and when you feel beat down in some regard, that's when you begin to say, I'm expecting God to do something. I don't know when it's going to happen, but he's promised that it would. So that's what I think God's been doing for 91 years among the people of Israel. Been teaching them a few things about waiting in expectation of blessing by bringing them to a low position. Another way of saying this would be to say that the humble Pomp and circumstance of this event in Ezra, this, this day, this day of dedication, the whole kind of smaller by feeling thing, um, that humble event really in Ezra, it really matches, I think, the humbled disposition of God's people. They had been humbled. What blows my mind is that it took 91 years. And when, when <laughs> you think about that, I, I just told you it blows my mind that it took 91 years. As if the pride inside of me wells up and says, why couldn't they get it sooner? Duh. 
are there any of us that really learn things any faster? I obviously in my pride think I do sometimes. <laughs> That's why I think that way. Why did it take 91 years? A couple questions for you. Do you know what it's like to be humbled because of your sin? Not just to give it a passing glance. Not to be so beat down about it that you're in despair. But to be humbled by your sin. Do you, I mean, it's not, it's not popular to talk about sin, right? Do you know what it's like to taste the consequences of your sin for, for a prolonged period of time in such a way that that prolonged period of time of tasting those consequences you know, like causes you to cling to God and his promises for that future redemption? Like, you know what that's like when you kind of go through those consequences? At first, you're butthurt about it, right? You're like, Ugh. either A, I'm mad because I got caught, or I'm upset because I think God's being too heavy-handed. Like, you go through kind of some of that season. At some point, you cross this threshold where you're like, okay, I did sin. I, I do kind of deserve some of this, okay? Okay, and, th- and then you get past a despair point where you're just, you're really sad. You're really down in the dumps. Um, then you reach this humbled place where you're like, you know, consequences for bad behavior. Yeah, this is true, but I also recognize eternal consequences have been taken for me at the cross of Christ. So I'm just humbling now, trusting in the promise that God's given me of the future in heaven. Like that's, you know what that journey is like, right? It, it never happens overnight either. That prolonged period of time facing those consequences where God teaches you to cling to him alone. Ever, how about this? You ever experience those little bright moments? Like, flip the script on this whole conversation for a minute. We've been talking about being humbled by sin. Okay, now think about those bright little moments in the process where God is lovingly disciplining us, right? Think about those bright little moments. Um, you know, if you have kids, um, you know what this is like. You, you, like, you discipline your kid, like you're teaching them boundaries, all this stuff, right? You're waiting for them to kind of get it. They're not rebelling and pushing back anymore. Now they're kind of humbled. They're quiet. They're listening. And at that moment, you're like, okay, hey, let's have some ice cream now. Here's a bright moment. You can have some ice cream now, right? And then, and then they have the ice cream, and things are good for a while, and then they act up again. It's like, okay, discipline again, no ice cream. But you have these bright little moments, I think, where God the Father does step in. And he gives us a, a taste of the restoration, the full restoration we're looking for in heaven, right? Um, there's, th- there's those bright little moments. Think about it this way. Th- think about... Think about the excitement you might feel when something you have waited for for a really long time becomes a reality, right? Um, we just passed Christmas, so many people got Christmas gifts maybe you were waiting for. I think that's a lame illustration if you ask me, but at least gets our hearts and our minds turning. Right? It's so felt need, right? Like, who cares? Christmas gifts. We're trying to talk about heart issues here. Um, about those, okay, those bright moments. Anybody ever had those bright moments where you kind of resist the addiction that has trailed you around for your entire life? Like those bright moments where you just resist it and you're like, yes, thank you, Jesus. And you know, I couldn't do that in my own strength because if I look back, I can see all of my failings. The only reason I resisted that addiction this moment was because God gave me the strength, right? And I responded to him in faith. But that's a bright moment, right? That's better than a gift on Christmas morning, but similar in the excitement feeling that you might feel 
maybe, uh, maybe the ray of sunshine. Think of it like, like the ray of sunshine that you might feel when a, a broken relationship gets restored. Ever have that moment? And maybe not even completely restored, but just restored enough to where you can be in the same room with somebody and you're not at each other's throats. Right? Like you're not in heaven yet where everything's just perfect, even though we always want heaven now. We want it to be fixed completely now, but you have those moments where a relationship that's been broken reaches that point and it's like, oh, breath of fresh air. That's a moment, I think, that causes me to, to, to look to God and to look to heaven and say, hey, I, I have hope. That that's, a, that's a taste of what's to come, right? Maybe the break in the clouds when you land the new job, right? You've been waiting on a new job and you land that or you land the pay raise. Those are still moments, I think, that are like little inklings of heaven, of the future that we're looking forward to, that we're waiting on for a long time. None of us here are 91 years old, but we're waiting, all waiting for something. Maybe it's a glimmer of hope when your sickness subsides, or your sickness just subsides enough so that you can get around for a day, right? These are bright moments in the midst of the darkness. That's what I think this day is like at the dedication of the temple. After 91 years of waiting, it's a bright moment on a day that points us to the full redemption restoration of God. See, these are days, days like this, these are days when God in his provisional kindness gives us this little taste, like a foretaste you know, it's like when you're waiting for the really, really good food to get on the table and mom or dad's not looking and you sneak over and you go to you go to get a little foretaste and then dad chases you down with a knife, right? No. <laughs> that was so fun. Oh, yeah, that was good. <coughs> I, don't, I don't know if that was the Holy Spirit or not. A foretaste, though. I mean, but you get the anticipation, right? Like, you're looking, I'm not looking. I'm going to get a little bit of that ham. <laughs> this, this is a foretaste. It's meant to make us anticipate the full meal. Gives us a taste of what is to come on that day when we walk into eternity in the presence of our Savior in heaven he is the fulfillment of all good things here on earth. Every good thing here on earth is meant to be like a little appetizer. Oftentimes what we do is we turn those appetizers into the main course. That's idolatry. We're going to get back to that some more. You think about reconciled relationships. You think about victory over sin. You think about recovered health. You think about monetary provision, right? On those days, those days where we experience those things here on this earth. Those are days where we can celebrate, which is exactly what Israel does on the day of dedication after 91 years of waiting. Look at what we see in the text. Just a brief outline of some of the things we see. First thing Israel does is they celebrate with joy, right? Celebrate with joy. I would too. Like in verse 16, Ezra tells us that all of the people of Israel... All of them, including her leaders, all of the exiles who had been set free from captivity, what did they do? They celebrated the completion of the building of the temple with what? Great joy. 
another version that we read this morning um, in our leaders meeting prior to, I think, said exuberantly. I imagine um, this day would have been very joy-filled, a very exuberant day of celebration. I imagine that this day of celebration was much better, if you remember, than the day of celebration back in Ezra 3. If you're not familiar with that, if you haven't been with us for the whole study, you should look back at Ezra 3 and look at the celebration that happened that day after the rebuilding of of the foundation for the temple. Because on that day, the sounds of celebration were heard for miles around, it says. But it wasn't just sounds of celebration, was it? The other sound was the sounds of some of the people complaining. It's never going to be as good as the old one. I don't know why I think that's what they sounded like, but that's what I think they sounded like. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's the voice I hear in my head. On that day when they celebrated the, the rebuilding of the foundation, complaining was heard for miles around along with the celebrating. And then what happened? the building slowed down because there were people that were complaining and it zapped the energy and the celebration right out of the life of the people who were ready to rebuild this thing. And from that point forward, it was about 14 more years. I remember right, 12 to 14 years, somewhere in there before this day. All because some goofy people in the community complained. It's not as good as the old one. Why even do this? doesn't appear to be any complaining on this day, though, on the day we're looking at today. The only thing we see is joy-filled celebration after 91 years of waiting. That's not all we see in the text. What else do we see? Second thing we see is Israel is offering sacrifices in verse 17. In verse 17, Ezra tells us that in the midst of the joy-filled celebration, all of Israel offers bulls, rams, and lambs to the Lord as they worshiped him for his provision in rebuilding the temple. And not only did they offer bulls, rams, and lambs in worship, but they also sacrificed 12 male goats. Charity read this in the message version, I think, and it said uh, 12 he-goats, and she really got a kick out of that. I, I kind of got a kick out of it, too. Um, you know, I, it, it's fun when you see a, a young child with the exuberant and, and the joy and the excitement of reading something that catches their attention. And he goats was what got her attention. <laughs> there were 12 he goats that they offered as a sin offering. And you'll notice that they offered those 12 male goats as a sin offering for what? And they offered it for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is really significant when you think about this, okay? It would be easy to read past this and and maybe not notice what's going on. Um, What's happening here, it's an act of the entire community confessing sin, really, and and, and trusting in the blood sacrifice as a community. Uh, We, we in, in, in America especially, much more than other nations, we really value individualism. I'm going to make my personal commitment to Jesus, right? TV evangelists have really pressed this. You need to come to Jesus and make a personal commitment to him. Surrender your life to Jesus. All very true. Do not hear me wrong. 
all very true. Each person will be held accountable individually for their own sin and not others. Yet, at the same time, what gets lost in that individualistic society is the communal nature of sin. You see, sin is not just an act that affects an individual. It does, but it's much more than that. It doesn't just affect you. It also affects, or I would say infects the family or the community. Uh, just like a little bit of yeast infects an entire loaf of bread, right? Some of you may be familiar with that passage, I believe, comes from Romans. I believe. It's been 91 years for Israel. 91 years since the entire community together had been able to offer sacrifices as a visible confession of sin and faith in the shadow of the temple building. This moment had to have felt deeply restorative, I think, for them. Deeply restorative for the entire community as they confessed sin together and verbalized, not only verbalized their faith, but, but made it in action as they sacrificed those 12 male goats. They verbalized their faith in the God who had just restored them. That's the message of the gospel. He had just restored them, just freed them from captivity, which is what sin is. Captivity. You give in to sin, you're imprisoned to it for a period of time until you realize the door has been opened by the work of Jesus at the cross, and you can get up and walk right out. The crazy thing about that image, at least in my mind when I think about it, and I think about my own journey and sin, is why do I keep walking back into that jail cell and closing the door and then needing to be reminded, hey, dude, the door is open, walk back out. Why? Because I'm not in heaven yet. We're not in heaven yet, right? Does that give us an excuse? No. Paul would say, heaven forbid. Grow up. <laughs> well, he didn't say that, but I think that's kind of what he says. This moment had to have been deeply restorative after 91 years in captivity. What else do you see happening here in the text? Another thing I see is that in Israel installs leaders at the very end. Seems pretty basic. Again, not a lot of fanfare. But in verse 18, in the midst of all the joy-filled, exuberant celebration, right? Um, as Israel is offering bulls and rams and lambs and goats in their worship and their confession. <coughs> Notice that they also installed leaders. They installed leaders to administrate the continued worship of God in the temple. The service of God is the way that it's put. So the worship of God in the temple. I think it's important to notice a couple of things about this. First, notice that they don't just haphazardly install leaders according to whatever newfangled business fad was running through the culture or falling off the bookshelves where they were at. Okay? Um, they, weren't, they weren't just developing leaders and creating leaders and installing leaders according to whatever great leadership philosopher was out there in their culture. Um, Israel actually installed leaders according to the timeless and ancient instructions that had been laid out by God in his word through Moses. 
And the text says that at the very end, right? It's through the word given through Moses. Um, all of the outlines of how they installed these leaders and what their jobs were and what their qualifications were, what their resume needed to look like, what their application needed to look like, and what their installation needed to look like, their pay, living conditions, everything really is laid out in Exodus 29, Leviticus 8, Numbers 3 and 8. You go read those chapters, you see the entire thing built out. When you jump in out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the New Testament church, you see all of those principles condensed down into the same administration of the church where you have elders and deacons and leaders. So oftentimes people want to say, oh, the Bible doesn't really prescribe how leaders. No, it does. It actually does. It's just that we like to play games with God's word. Even when it's not talking about leaders, we like to play games with God's word in other ways too. There are very basic, simple ways that God has ordained to put leaders in the church. Now, are there different functions and things that we do? Like, who's going to vacuum the floor? and Who's going to straighten out the, the chairs? Who's going who's to take the... Yeah, in those ways, you do need to provide some fill-in-the-blank pieces. Um, but that doesn't mean we leave out the very leaders that God has ordained for service and administering the, ministering the worship within God's church. So what Israel did here in this text, basically was they installed priests for preaching and teaching. They installed Levites to lead the worship and the music in the temple. Now, this is a really oversimplified description of all those passages I just outlined because we would spend five hours here if I got down to the nitty-gritty with you. We don't need to do that. Um, All we need to know is that after 91 years of not being able to organize large group worship gatherings in a temple building, what were the people of Israel doing? Uh, they're, they're free to worship together as an entire community under the leadership that God has ordained in his word through Moses many centuries ago. And when you think about Israel's history, 91 years ago, they went into captivity. Why? Because they disobeyed God's word. Right? And they practiced idolatry. Now, 91 years later, the very end of this passage at the dedication of the temple tells us they're obeying God's word. Yay, touchdown, win. Right? Good job. It's one of those bright, shiny moments for Israel. One of those bright, shining moments. Seemed to have learned her lesson. At least for the moment. (laughs) The rest of the study of the book of Ezra is rough. Rough. You ever hear a dog say rough? Me neither. (laughs) No. (laughs) Rough. Bright, shiny moments are, are, are a good thing, and we shouldn't overlook them too much, but they're meant to teach us some things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, meant to, they're meant to teach us some things, and probably warn us of some things, too. That's why it's good for us to ask, why does any of this matter? All this stuff that you've been talking to us about, why does it matter? What, what, what good is it? I was thinking about that question this week. I was thinking about this story, thinking about what this experience must have been like for Israel after 91 years of captivity because of her sin and her rebellion, right? Tried to remember moments in my own life when I had experienced something similar. Never experienced 91 years, obviously. Tried to think maybe also ahead, okay? So I'm thinking of two things. 
a season in my life when it was similar, and then think ahead in the grand story of the Bible. Think ahead of what, where's Israel headed? Like, is this just like, is this the end? Is this, no, because they're not in heaven, right? We know that, so it, there's a lot more. And I just told you it's going to get rough, so now you know. Um, so I try to think ahead, narratively, in the context of the entire Bible, and just go, what, what, what's coming down the pike? Because I, 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 or pipe, I think it's supposed to say pipe, not pike. I don't know what a pike is. Anyways, what's coming down the pipe, right? We want to know that so that we can be warned of what might lie ahead for us based on what lied ahead for Israel. And, and here's, here's, let me be snarky for a minute. Not that I, do I ever ask permission to be snarky? Yeah. I could have, I think, landed like three practical points to end this up with, to wrap this up with and go home. Like three kind of practical points about celebration and about confession and about leadership. I don't think I would have been totally wrong to do that. Um, I just really got to thinking about the grand narrative of the scriptures. You know, I, I, I don't really get that that's really the intention of Ezra here. I don't think his intention was to teach us about how to celebrate well. I don't think his intention was to teach us about how to confess really well, although it's important. I don't think his intention was to teach us about how to install leaders either. I think his intention in the storyline is to point to the timeline, that day of the dedication, what had come before and what's, what's going to come after. Because you have to know that Ezra's not writing this as it happens. Ezra's writing this many years later, okay? Um, so he's writing, I think, on purpose. And the way you see that he lays out the rest of the book, I think if you were to come back to this sermon, I think you'd go, okay, I think I see what you're saying. So I got to thinking about my own story and I also got to thinking about Israel's story ahead. I spent nearly 22 years of my life running from God. That's how long I ran from him. 22 years. I'm 44 today. Not that I turned 44 today. I'm just 44 right now. <laughs> and it's a small miracle and a wonder that I could even tell you how old I am. So bless you. Bless you all. Thank you, Jesus. That's what I meant to say. 22 years I spent running from God. And uh, 22 years almost I've... I've spent following God, so I'm like, I'm like this halfway weird, like halfway bridge point in my journey. Um, the reality is, um, I lived those first 22 years in some of the most despicable sin I could think of. Um, and, and here's the thing, I'm sure you understand this, the consequences, the earthly consequences, my, my eternal consequences for those sins, I know those are at the cross. I've been washed clean. I know that. The earthly consequences of those 22 years uh, of sin, those don't go away overnight. You know, you don't, you don't live the life that David lived and not have some jacked up stuff happen in your family and in your own life. And, it's, and in, I, I really identify with David quite a bit um, because of my storyline. And, and I've said this a lot, even to our own family members. And, and it's the same way in our family too, and in my own life. Um, those consequences don't go away overnight. Uh, the relational brokenness um, in my family because of my sin in the past is really something that continues to affect our family year after year. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, it's an old Italian statement. It is what it is. Forget about it. It is what it is. <coughs> I don't want you to hear me wrong. There are some really miraculous parts to my story. You, most of you know that. You know some of the miraculous parts of my story. God has restored a ton of things in my life, right? <coughs> He's restored marriage, 
given us lots of kids, restored relationships with extended family members and old friends. God kind of definitely redeemed me. God's restored much of the brokenness in my life. And I'm not, not wanting to just talk about me. I'm just really hoping that maybe me fleshing this text out in my own story might help you to do the same. You know what I mean? To think about your own story and see how it connects with what God is saying here and what's going on. Because here's the thing. Though God has done all that redemptive work in my life, if I'm not careful, this is important, I think, If I'm not careful, and if you're not careful, we can make all of the restoration, the restorative things God's done in our lives, we can make those things into an idol. As crazy as that sounds, we can. I could live my life for one thing alone, keeping my family together, right? Again, that's just my story. Much like Israel could live for one thing alone, Keeping the temple beautiful, right? Are you starting to see the connections? If you know the story a bit, you might start kind of feel some of those pieces falling into place. Now, here's the thing. If I'm going to be really honest, I guess as honest as I can be with my own blind spots, but if I'm going to be as honest as I can be, I probably have more days than I realize where I do worry about these kinds of things. My family staying together, maybe. Um, I spend ungodly amounts of energy, lose untold amounts of sleep over things like that. Those are evidences of the brokenness in my heart and my life where I fail to trust God, right? Here's the reality. The best way to assess, if you want to assess inside of your life and your heart, you want to assess whether something um, has become an idol in your life, Think about this. Uh, Think about how that thing promises you comfort, acceptance, security, control, or power. Okay? Think about that. Where does something promise comfort, acceptance, security, control, power? See, idolatry is a crazy thing. Again, this was the major sin of Israel. It was idolatry that got them in the hot seat 91 years ago, okay? It's an insane little insidious creature, I call it, idolatry. It's the way I see it in my head, this slimy little lizardly-like thing. It's the only way I can embody what I think of idolatry. It's so slimy. It's just slimy. Part of it is this. Idolatry has a tendency to cloak itself in the appearance of something good. And and always to the extent that God's glory, God's presence, God's promises, God's provision um, is diminished in my life. Like, this is especially true, this slimy, deceptive nature of idolatry. Again, the desire for comfort, acceptance, security, control, power. That idolatry, when we pursue those things outside of pursuing God, and, and letting God be the fulfillment of those things, um, it gets seriously messy when the pursuit of those things gets cloaked in religious language. Okay, now it's almost, it's, it's, it's really hard to see or recognize. And th- that's probably the threat that all of us are under the most, especially if you spent more than 15 minutes in a church gathering somewhere. Because you get just enough religious language around you, that you can kind of cloak something in that. 
Um, so now look ahead, look ahead to Israel, right? I'm just going to, I'm really just kind of beefing this up with as much context application as I can. I don't know that I need to prove the point anymore, but I just want you to see what I saw as I thought about this this week. You look ahead with Israel, look, look past this day of dedication after that 91 years of waiting, right? Gr- small, grand, beautiful day. You look ahead in Israel's history, look to the days of Jesus for a minute in your mind uh, with what you know of the, of the Gospels. It's roughly 500 years later, okay? So again, let me do this different because I know you guys read left to right, not right to left. So uh, 91 years leads up to dedication of the temple. From the dedication of the temple, 500 years, right? All the way over here, Jesus steps on the scene 500 years later. That's five times longer than Israel waited to build the temple. 500 years later, Jesus steps on the scene. You're hoping they're still celebrating well. You're hoping that they're still um, confessing sin well. You're hoping that, boy, after 500 years, you guys got to have this down pat, right? You're hoping, and you all know the answer, right? I've been sarcastic enough. You're hoping that their leadership system is just perfect. There's no stories of the collapse of Mars Hill there, right? There wouldn't be any of that there, would there? After 500 years? You see uh, King Herod. Now they have a physical king. So King Herod is on the scene. And King Herod has just completed this massive a really expensive uh, temple expansion plan. That's what he's done. I mean, it is beautiful. It's ornate. It's gorgeous. It can seat more people than you could ever imagine. You talk about doing baptisms on a Sunday, bro. Like, I mean, I can just flip back and forth. I mean, that sanctuary is like thousands of people. I mean, it's just a massive church building plan. He sinks a crap ton of money into it. On top of that, the community of Israel has now splintered into four different little denominations, I would call them. You guys hear me talk about them all the time. You got the Sadducees, who are the liberals. You got the Pharisees, who are the conservatives. You got the Zealots, who are like armed with their Bibles and their American flags and their guns, like all together. It's really weird. And then you got these other guys. I like, I mean, I like the Zealots, okay? That's. If I was living that day and I was going to like fall into some group, it's probably the group that would have got my attention, riding my motorcycle. Here we go, okay? This other group that I really liked, though, was this group called the Essenes. The Essenes just, like, they lived out in the trees. They had lawn hair. They ate locusts and wild honey. And they, they lived in trees. And, you know, it was just like they were like this really uber-spiritual priestly type, really kind of weird probably. You know, they had big beards too, I think. So I could have fit that group as well. I'm just saying, in that day, here's what was going on. There were four basic denominations, and those were the four, okay? The identity of Israel, 500 years later, um, is more wrapped up in their temple building, their interpretation of God's word, and their religious practices than being a rescued people who were looking for a Messiah. That's what happened in 500 years. So when Jesus steps on the scene, he absolutely begins and continues to obliterate Israel's sense of security and comfort and acceptance and power and control. Because over the course of 500 years, Israel had given back into the same idolatry they'd given into 91 years before the dedication of the temple. 
They'd stop looking to God to be their hiding place. They stopped looking to God to be their comforter. They stopped looking to God to provide their acceptance. Israel had fallen into the sin of idolatry once again. And what they were doing was they were leveraging control and power through their religious temple system. And you can see this as you do studies on the temple system when Jesus stepped onto the scene. Especially when Jesus walks in and flips tables. You know why he does that? Not just because he's mad that it's not a house of prayer. That's a big piece of it. The other piece of it is that people that were selling those things in the temple were making astronomical three to four to five times the amount of the money on those items being sold. And those items being sold were being sold to the poor. Because the poor didn't own anything. And the poor needed a way to come into the church and give a sacrifice. And Christians in the temple were taking advantage of the poor. That's what's going on in that text. Idolatry had just completely infected the entire system. This is why they are so shocked. Once again, looking ahead, right? This is why they're so shocked. You might remember Jesus says that he's going to rebuild the temple in three days after it's destroyed, right? You remember their kind of their response to him when he says that? Like they're absolute shock. And obviously we know, maybe we should know, or if you don't know, now you'll know, Jesus, when he's talking about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days, he's not even talking about the physical temple, really. He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. But the people of Israel completely miss the point, as they typically do. And as I typically do. Because they're so stuck in finding their comfort and their acceptance and their security and their control and their power in something outside of God. So this is why it's important to spend time tearing down idols in our lives, right? That was, it's not easy. Again, it's not easy. Tearing down idols is not just about getting rid of these filthy, dirty things in your life, right? It's not just about getting rid of like porn or drunkenness or illicit relationships. It's not just that. It includes that, yes. <clears throat> it's also about getting after the more acceptable sins of things like worry. And what do we cloak worry in? Because if we just say we're concerned about something, it sounds better. I'm just, I'm really, I'm, I'm just concerned. No, you're worried. See? So we cloak worry in this, in this concern language. Or we, um, or we cloak uh, control, the desire to control something in this word, accountability. Hey, brother, I'm just trying to hold you accountable. Really, I just want to control you and make you stop doing what you're doing. That's really what's going on, right? Fine lines in here. Um, power. This desire for power, at least from my perspective, can oftentimes be cloaked in administration. You're just going to get all those ducks in a row. Drives me crazy when rows of chairs aren't straight. And I, I love how Heather straightens them out and then shows me that they're not straight. <laughs> she knows me. You know, it's good for me to be rubbed the wrong way on that thing <laughs> and to let it go. Trust Jesus that even if the rows of chairs aren't straight, we're going to be okay. <laughs> there, is a, there is a heaven, even for people who don't make things straight. <laughs> Power can be cloaked in administration. Comfort. How, how do you cloak comfort? How about peace, right? I'm, uh, it's, it's more comfortable for most of us if there's just peace. Like, keep the peace at all costs. Don't make peace, keep the peace. You see the difference? Making peace actually takes engaging something and some conflict. Keeping peace is just like, oh, everybody just be quiet. Just forget it. Just forget, just forget that. Just turn the TV up a little bit louder, okay? 
That's keeping the peace. <laughs> and, and underneath of that, underneath of that is a desire for comfort that's not being found in God. How about acceptance? Uh, acceptance is a big one for me, too. Um, acceptance typically gets cloaked in a people-pleasing thing, a serving nature. Let me serve you. Let me help. Um, now, it's not to say that all those things are wrong. Accountability is good. Administration is good. You following me? Being concerned about something is good. That's where the rubber meets the road. You see what I'm saying about how slimy this little insidious creature of idolatry is? It's nutso. I'll tell you, I think the only real thing that will help us get after tearing down those idol factories in our hearts is just simply time spent with Jesus consistently. I noticed that the, the, like when I get out of my rhythms and routines of t- spending time with Jesus, I think it's in those moments where I'm not hearing his voice speak to me about those things, right? And then I begin to misuse or abuse those kinds of things like accountability or administration, so on and so forth. Peacekeeping rather than peacemaking, so on and so forth. So those are just some of my thoughts on this whole idolatry thing. There's so many, so many ways that our little idol factory hearts can like churn out new ways of worshiping something other than the God who has sent his son to redeem us at the cross. See, Israel, you go back to the text now, and we're going to come full circle back around. Israel's joy-filled celebration meant it was commendable, right? Their joy-filled celebration was a commendable thing until it became the ultimate annual thing that if I understand correctly, uh, became... What's that uh, Jewish holiday that happens in December before Christmas? I think it becomes Hanukkah. Somebody do the math on that and let me know if I'm right or not. But I think I read that in a book somewhere this week when I was studying this. I believe this temple dedication basically spawns off into that. So a very commendable thing until it becomes an ultimate annual thing that replaces true worship that looks ahead to a Messiah. Right? Um, their sin offering. Very commendable, very godly thing until it becomes the ultimate way of maintaining outward appearances instead of being concerned with the inner workings of the heart. Third, Israel's insulation of leaders, according to God's timeless blueprint, very, very commendable until it ultimately becomes a system of power and control. So can you see how easy it is? See how easy it is for Israel to fall right back into the idolatry that landed them into exile 91 years earlier. I also want to ask this. Can you also at the same time as you think your way through this with me, can you also feel the immense weight of the grace and the mercy and the never-ending love of God in the grand scheme of the whole story? Like, it just, it hits me every time. Not only did God restore Israel from exile, but he also foresaw all of what was coming around the bend, down the pipe, as Jesus prepared to step into that story in the flesh. Right? That's what I want to conclude with. That's what I want to leave us with. I always want to leave us in the shadow of that bloody cross. I always want to leave us in the doorway of that empty tomb. I always want to leave us holding on to the hope of eternity. Right? That promise. <coughs> See, God knew all of the ways that Israel had failed. He knew all the ways that they would fail, and yet he still sent Jesus. Jesus still came to this earth, right, with his heart full of joy, with his mind bent towards selfless sacrifice at the cross of Calvary for, for people like you and me. 
Like ultimately, Jesus would become the fulfillment of everything that the temple stood for, right? Like his broken body, his shed blood, that would be the sacrifice that we now celebrate in the communion meal that we take every week. And we should take that with some kind of joy. Yes, there should be a soberness to it about our sin. But simultaneously, there should also be a joy that this is what Jesus did for me. He's the ultimate leader, right? When you think about leadership in this text, Jesus is the ultimate leader. He never fails as a leader. He, he continuously shepherds God's people perfectly for all of eternity. He is our great shepherd. But you think about it, 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 it. It's that old song, In Christ Alone. right? We're not singing that song today, but I, I just leave us with those thoughts. It's in Christ alone where our acceptance is found. It's in Christ alone where our comfort rests. I don't know where you've been getting caught up in seeking acceptance or seeking comfort or seeking power or seeking security or seeking control. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I trust him to reveal that to you and hope that you surrender to him as he speaks to you. But I also want to remind you that it is in Christ alone where our acceptance is found. It's in Christ alone where our comfort rests. It's in Christ alone where uh, we find eternal security. It's in Christ alone where we surrender those desires for control and power. You see, acceptance, comfort, security, control, and power, that big slimy thing called idolatry, as we look to other things to fulfill those desires rather than Christ, that thing, those desires will never ultimately be found in our annual celebrations, right? They're never going to be found in our religious practices, never going to be, never going to be soothed rightly in our systems of leadership, which really, I think, affects politics when you think about it. I'll just leave that alone. At the end of the day, all those desires will never be found in the shadow of some earthly building like a temple either. Right? Never be found there. Those things are only found, as I love to say, in the shadow of a bloody cross where we really should spend a lot of time. They'd be found in the doorway of an empty tomb where Jesus was victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And they're found in the light of the hope of heaven. How do you get there? You go there. You go there and you stay there. And you let the Spirit work in you. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. As we close, Father, I ask that you would continue to turn the eyes of our hearts to you. Um, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, um, reveal and uncover any idolatry, any seeking of placating of those desires that we talked about in ways that are sinful. <coughs> Remind us yet again, too, of the hope that we have in Jesus, the finished work of Jesus at the cross, the victory we have in the empty tomb, the hope that we have in heaven. I trust you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 